Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. It is the day after Christmas, and nothing seems to have changed. Christ is born, and yet there is still darkness. You're listening to The Dark Side of Christmas by guest minister, Reverend David Bast. The Lord be with you. And Merry Christmas. A uh, little bit of a down Christmas carol we just sang, isn't it? As is the story we're going to read, the Christmas story uh, today. And I'm going to read it in two versions. Uh, first of all, I'm going to read, uh, if I asked you, where is the Christmas story found in the Bible? And you know your Bible fairly well, as I trust you do here. Uh, you'd probably say, well, Luke, Luke 1 and 2, certainly, most of the familiar details. You'd maybe add Matthew 1 and 2, uh, still more. The wise men are in Matthew, the shepherds are in Luke. How many of you would add Revelation chapter 12? So listen to this, John's version, Christmas remixed, I call it. Uh, a, a, a hallucinatory Christmas. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So that's the apocalyptic version of the story. And we turn now to Matthew chapter 2 to read the historical account of the story. And as we do that, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we pick up the story just after the exit of the wise men. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. 
And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. So what, uh, what we have here today is what I'm calling the dark side of Christmas. This is the part of the Christmas story that doesn't make it into the Sunday school pageants, uh, the part we tend to skip. We're quite happy with all the traditional, beautiful images surrounding and even invading the stable. So we have the wise men and the shepherds both kneeling at the manger, when in fact it appears from Matthew's account that the wise men didn't come till maybe a year or two later. And Joseph and Mary are no longer in a cave or a stable uh, or the place where the animals were, uh, were kept. They're living in a house, uh, appeared to have settled down in Bethlehem. And uh, very little in the way of joy. <laughs> and uh, brightness and light. There are some angels that appear throughout our story, but not the heavenly host singing glory to God. We sang uh, so appropriately just before uh, this sermon a, a very ancient haunting carol, the Coventry Carol, and before that a very modern hymn, Christmas hymn, um, which was so appropriate the day after Christmas and nothing seems to have changed. Jesus has come, but it's the same old world. And so the first story we read is of an atrocity, a kind of proto-genocide of the boys of Bethlehem. As Herod, learning that he had been tricked by the Magi, goes nuts, basically, goes off and no sooner have they gotten back on their camels and ridden away back to the east and his stormtroopers take over the page, marching in and slaughtering the innocents, the slaughter of the innocents, it's traditionally called. And Jesus becomes a refugee with his parents. And honestly, 
Can we read these stories and not think about our world today? The, the refugee crisis flooding, the refugees on our doorstep here in Grand Rapids, the mothers who are still weeping in the Middle East as they mourn the loss of their innocent children, killed by terrorist bombings, some of them killed by our bombings. Yeah, and I get that it's complicated, <laughs> but seriously, what, should we not look at that and think about it? Should we not at least weep for what still happens? And you want to talk genocide. Our, the last century was the championship of the genocidal world. And it, and it continues. Today, I read uh, the news headlines this morning. 30 people were slaughtered in a village in Myanmar. A, a, a genocidal campaign goes on there. This morning. So yeah, uh, no sentimentalism in the Bible's account of Christmas. We love sentimental Christmas stories. Oh, we do, you know, where Scrooge is changed in the course of a night from a misanthropic skin flint into this kind, generous one, all in one night. All it takes is just open your eyes, you know, change your heart. Doesn't work that way in the real world. This world is a terrible, evil place filled with suffering, unjust suffering. So much so that God himself had to come in order to deal with it. So what, what's the point of this? Uh, is it just a downer? <laughs> uh, why does Matthew so carefully unpack the details uh, throughout this chapter, not just um, the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem, but the movements. It's full of movement, this story, from uh, the, the eastern regions where the Magi came from, maybe Persia, to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, to Egypt, up to Nazareth. Uh, and all the movements seem to be choreographed by God very carefully in order to say something and do something. The question is what? What's going on here? And I, I would kind of summarize this chapter and, and indeed the bits that go before back into chapter one as um, revelations, locations, and quotations. That's what we have here. So revelations, God is making himself known and he's doing it by coming into history. Most remarkably, he makes himself known to the Magi through the rising of a star, which is absolutely astonishing because the Magi, uh, as one modern translation describes them, were diviners. They dabbled in astrology to try to foretell the future, absolutely forbidden to any honest, faithful Israelite. It's as though God decided to reveal Jesus to some Hindu mystic through uh, yoga or something. That's how 
shocking it was to think that the Magi are the first to, to, to publicly come from outside and acknowledge him. And then there's the dreams. You, you notice how many dreams there are in these stories? I mean, Joseph has four dreams in the course of the story. First one in chapter one, when the angel of the Lord reveals to him, now Joseph, don't be afraid. Don't put her away quietly. She hasn't been unfaithful. This child is holy. It's from God. And Joseph says, yeah, okay. Uh, how easy was that? The Magi have a dream of their own, kind of a bonus dream. And then three more dreams to Joseph. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, get out of Bethlehem. And in the middle of the night, he packs up and goes. And then a, few, a couple of years later, maybe the angel appears again and says, well, you can go back. And then He's on his way back, and he has another dream that says, no, don't stop in Judea. Go on up to Galilee. And I just, I just try to imagine Joseph. This whole thing is precarious. This whole story, in some ways, is absurd. This is God at work, and... The future of salvation depends on one guy interpreting a dream that he has correctly. What if Joseph had gotten up in the morning and said, I think it was just indigestion. I'm, I'm staying here. We're settled in Bethlehem. I'm not going to, what, leave in the middle of the night? Martin Luther, in one of his Christmas stories, has a wonderful passage about the absurdity of this. This is the God of the universe, and this is how he goes about saving the world. Why does he do such preposterous things? He puts a babe in a crib. Our common sense revolts and says, could not God have saved the world some other way? I would not have sent an angel. I would have simply called in the devil and said, let my people go. The Christian faith is foolishness. It says that God can do anything and yet makes him so weak that either his son had no power and wisdom or else the whole story is made up. Surely the God who in the beginning said, let there be light, let there be a firmament, let the dry land appear, could have said to the devil, give me back my people, my Christians. God does not even send an angel to take the devil by the nose. He sends, as it were, an earthworm lying in weakness, helpless without his mother. And he suffers him to be nailed to a cross. And then in his weakness and infirmity, he crunches the devil's back and alters the whole world. He suffered himself to be trodden underfoot of man and to be crucified and through weakness, he takes his power and kingdom. Crazy story. It's Joseph's time to shine, too, isn't it? I don't know if you notice, Mary's the hero of Luke. She hardly appears in Matthew. This is Joseph's hour. Good old anonymous Joseph. And it's he who must respond to the promptings of God's revelation and take action to save the Son of God. 
So revelations, God is somehow stage managing this whole thing, but he's depending on very human, weak, fallible people, sort of like us. God entrusts his work to us. How crazy is that? You'd think he'd know better by now. <laughs> and then quotations, did you notice that? Um, they pop up over and over and over in these few chapters. So back in chapter one, famously from Isaiah seven, behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The wise men come down uh, and show up in Jerusalem, obviously enough, that's where the king would be, right? Bethlehem, I mean, that's kind of a shock. Bethlehem, yes, it was the city of David, but as soon as he could, David left town and never looked back. He never went back to Bethlehem. He settled in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where the kings were. That became the city of David. Bethlehem was at best a village of David. Uh, and so we have Micah 5 as the, the scribes and priests quickly go back to their scrolls and look up where's the Messiah to be. Oh yeah, it's right here, Micah 5 verse 2. You, Bethlehem, are not least among the cities of Judah, for from you shall come a prince uh, to shepherd my people Israel. And then as Joseph flees with his family to Egypt, Matthew says it was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the prophet, in this case, Hosea 11 verse one, out of Egypt I've called my son. And then again, as the mothers of Bethlehem are mourning their lost children, an echo of the words of Jeremiah 31, Rachel weeping for her children for they, and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. As so often in the case of the Bible, a quotation in the New Testament of the Old Testament uh, brings to mind whole layers of, of story. It's, it's sort of like striking a key on the piano and hearing the overtones, the, it, the, the octaves are sounded. So Rachel weeping, that goes all the way back to Genesis. Rachel, you remember, died in childbirth on the way to Bethlehem, naming her child with her last breath, Ben-Oni, child of my sorrow, later changed by Jacob to Ben-Yamin, child of my right hand. And then centuries later, the prophet uh, echoes that story of sorrow in the lament of the women of Bethlehem as Israel is taken into exile, as the Babylonian army uh, wreaks havoc in that region. And once again, mothers are bereft and the sound of crying is heard. And then finally, here, as Jesus and his parents have fled, the mothers are left with their sorrow again. So this plan that God uh, is engineering by revealing his will to Joseph in particular has been foretold. It, it, this isn't sort of an improvisation 
uh, on the fly as he figures out, what do I do next? Oh, look out, there comes Herod. This is all uh, divinely ordered and prophesied in the Old Testament. And then finally, uh, a last quote, he'll be called a Nazarene, which is not found anywhere in the Old Testament, so it's more of a paraphrase than a quote, perhaps um, a play on words with Nazarite, um, the story of, for example, Samson, um, a, a special child who's set apart from birth for God. But again, this movement, locations and quotations and revelations, uh, it's all kind of going together to, to say what exactly? Well, to say several things briefly. First, Jesus is the one. He's what it's all about. He's the one you've been looking for. He's the one you've been waiting for. He is the true Messiah. He is, in fact, Israel personified. So this is what Matthew writes, what uh, Dale Bruner calls theological geography. So you see in the story of Israel, again, the overtones of the life of Jesus. They resonate together like David, he's born in Bethlehem. Like Moses, his life is spared when he's an infant. Uh, like the children of Israel, he goes down into Egypt where he's sustained by Joseph, just as Joseph's namesake would provide for his brothers and family. Out of Egypt, he comes as Israel in the Exodus did. God calls his son up uh, out of bondage. And finally, he settles in Galilee, Galilee, Nazareth of all places, the backside of beyond. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel would quip. It's like Hicksville. It's like Hope, Arkansas. Who's, who's going to come from there? Ah, but there's another quotation in chapter 4, where Matthew says, quoting Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a, a great light, Galilee of the Gentiles. See, the invaders came through Galilee. The Assyrians and the Babylonians, it was the ancient invasion route. They came down out of the north. And when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, that's where it's going to start. Unexpected? Sure but foretold. Jesus is the one. If you're waiting for an answer, you're not going to get any, anyone other than him. Furthermore, Jesus is the king. Very interesting little detail I hadn't seen, and then someone much smarter than I, again Dale Bruner, in his great commentary, points out that in the opening verses of Matthew 2, we're told about King Herod in Jerusalem, what King Herod does. But after the child's birth is announced, from then on, through the rest of the story, he's just plain old Herod. See, he's been displaced. At the beginning, he's his majesty, the king. 
after Jesus appears, he's just plain old Mr. Herod, like the rest. There's only one king. And this is where it gets real, I think, for us. Because there's a little bit of Herod in each of us. I know there is in me. I fear my heart more than any pope, said Martin Luther, because in my heart there lives a pope called self. And in your heart and mine, there lives a king called self. And there can only be one king. So either we will acknowledge him and bowing before him, open our treasures, offering them to him. Or we'll try to get rid of him. And, oh, believe me, we find many ways to do that, don't we? Do you love him? Then serve him. One of the things Betty Jo and I love to do each Christmas, it's our kind of personal tradition, is to sit on Christmas Eve, beginning at 10 in the morning, we listen to the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from Cambridge, King's College, um, and I'm always moved, not just by the beautiful music, the carols, but by the liturgy, which begins with a bidding prayer, including these words. As we think about this season, we're bid that because of this, it would, of all things, rejoice his heart if we remembered in his name the poor and helpless, the cold and the hungry, the abused, the exploited, the oppressed, the sick in body and in mind, and them that mourn, the isolated, the lonely, and the unloved, the elderly and the little children, all who know not the Lord Jesus or who love him not, or who by sin have grieved his heart of love. And could the Lord be telling us, we who worship the king, we who love the king, we who want to serve the king, maybe not in a dream, maybe not by an angel, but to remember someone like that and do something for the sake of the King. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, who makes us glad with the yearly remembrance of the birth of your only Son, Jesus Christ, grant that as we joyfully receive him for our Redeemer, so we may with sure confidence behold him when he shall come to be our judge who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.